0: Hello and welcome to the Neural Farm podcast. There's over 4 million podcasts in the United States, but we're certainly glad that you're choosing to listen to this one. We hope we can provide you with some information and education on this afternoon. My name is Dr. Colby Burns, Doctor of Pharmacy, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Chris Tony, Doctor of Pharmacy. And we have a special guest today, Aaron Orsini. He's an autistic psychedelic educator author and researcher. He has published four books, uh, Autism on Acid in 2019, Autistic Psychedelic in 2021, Introduction to Psychedelic Autism in 2022, and Psychedelic Autism in 2023. He presently serves as a psychedelic autism research co-author collaborator to the University College in London, and an advisor to an ADAPT drug education study founded by Organization for Autism Research. Aaron is a lecturer on psilocybin facilitation for Alma Institute and Sound Mind Institute in Oregon, Naropa University in Colorado, and Naropa University in Colorado. He is the lead instructor for a first-of-kind facilitation-focused intensive course offered by AutisticPsychedelic.com. Aaron started AutisticPsychedelic.com in 2020 as an online resource and meeting portal for autistic individuals, as well as the friends, family, and professionals who seek to support autistic individuals in various psychedelic contexts. This global community offers peer support meetings, resource libraries, monitored chat forums, podcasts, video presentations, and immersive educational opportunities, including the first-of-its-kind introduction to psychedelic autism, textbook, and learning intensive, designed with therapists and facilitators in mind. Aaron presently lives in Denver, where he is focused on creating decentralized and affordable community care models that can offer psilocybin and other natural medicines through grow, gift, and get together approaches. So gonna be talking with Aaron about the use of psychedelic medicine in, in autism, autism spectrum disorder, just talking about his experience, his work, and about the research going on in this field, which is very exciting. Um, There was numerous studies conducted in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s uh, on LSD in children with autism spectrum disorder. Although these studies are considered in today's context to have some questionable methodologies, like a lot of studies from that era when we covered uh, LSD early research Back in episode two of this podcast series, we discussed um, you know some of the early studies from that era on the LSD, and not that they should be discarded, but the way we approach the science is a little bit different back then. Um, but this is now an area of ongoing research today, the use of psychedelics for autism. Compass Health is developing synthetic serotonin substrates to more clearly investigate the role of the serotonin system in autism spectrum. MindMed is also investigating a MDMA-like compound for individuals with social anxiety disorder based on results from a small 2018 pilot study that showed seven out of eight individuals with autism spectrum disorder experienced significant and durable drop in social anxiety scores after completing a single MDMA-guided therapy session, compared to those who took a placebo with therapy, with effects persisting beyond 30 days after a single session. Nova Mentis is seeking approval from Canadian authorities to test the effects of repeated microdoses of psilocybin in individuals with Fragile X syndrome on the heels of the U.S. FDA granting orphan drug status to an American drug company to pursue research on a psilocybin compound for Fragile X syndrome in 2021. So I discovered you know, Aaron's group myself at the MAPS conference back in June in Denver and just Fascinated by what they're doing and very excited to have him on the show. So, going to open up uh, for questions for Aaron. Um, can you talk about your journey for our audience? What led you to, into LSD or psychedelic therapy initially, and what's been your experience with psychedelics?
1: Yeah, so um, a couple of years prior to my first engagement with LSD, um, I was diagnosed as autistic, late diagnosed as an adult at age 23. Um, and that gave me a good amount of context for, you know, what was kind of the origin of some of these challenges. Um, and you know, some of these general kind of tendencies that I had. Um, but I didn't get the support that I needed through that period. And it was a bit of like a a depression that I was already in wasn't really resolved uh, after I was diagnosed. I, I sort of had, when you go through a diagnosis process, there's a lot of emphasis on uh, deficits. Like if you look at the DSM definition, it's, it's almost all like listings of deficits um, that are seen in autism. And so I really fixated on those and I, I saw them as kind of like just kind of some sort of like permanent, Uh, Aspect of myself, and uh, so I I dealt with that depression, and it kind of led to like suicidality. I sort of, I sort of thought that I would always be kind of socially isolated as a result of all of this, that I would never really understand uh, like how to human, for lack of better term, and uh, that persisted for a few more years until uh, eventually um, I just kind of decided one day to kind of, kind of like burn my life, life to the ground, so to speak, and I quit my job, left a relationship, packed up all my stuff. And I went to California just kind of trying to find some sort of meaning or purpose. It seemed like everyone else was enjoying life. And I was like, I hate everything. Um, and I have this disorder and I can't do anything. And what do I do? Um, and so, you know, it was it was intentional in the sense that, like, you know, I was looking for something more. Um, and some friends that I was staying with kind of recommended that I might maybe get some benefit. Uh, they perceived that I was just kind of, like, really ruminatory, really stressed out, really, you know, just really hard on myself. And um, they were like, maybe you should try LSD. Um, and so I did that, and I sought it out, and I kind of self-administered my first session with it. Um, and I had the hallmarks of a classic psychedelic experience in that first session, uh, you know, the sort of unity and like sense of oneness and kind of connection and like a sense of like being part of something Bigger than myself, all of those things happened. Um, but the the novelty for me was uh, like in the second half of that session, um, I was interacting with people uh, where I was. I was in like this wooded area, and and in my interactions, there was this different quality uh, of like awareness within my body. Like my my somatic awareness was like deeply, deeply enhanced to where, like, I was really feeling, like, the signals coming in through my body in, like, a way I'd never had. Like, as I was having conversations, I felt like I had this extra dimension of awareness, which was, like a really deep and visceral feeling of my own feelings, Um, being autistic, being kind of othered and left out, uh, and also being bullied as a kid, having, you know, I've never gotten a PTSD diagnosis, but I had a highly dissociated way of of being in my body or not really having connection to my body. So LSD really helped bring that online. Um, And I noticed that I could do that consistently. So I started to experiment with different dosing ranges Um, And I found that there was this way that I could enhance that interoceptive processing reliably, Um, and so I couldn't really find anything online about such practices, so I wrote a book about it and just kind of asked the world to write me back if they'd had similar experience. And now to date, I've heard from, you know, almost like somewhere around like eight or 9,000 people have written me their reports and told me about their experiences. Not all of them are identical to my own, but uh, a lot of the qualities that stood out to me that seem novel as compared to, say, the like non-autistic population. Uh, have have kept me intrigued by this like subtler application something that's different from just the the intervention style therapies something that's more of like kind of the same way someone would take Adderall for focus i i tend to take LSD for sort of like embodiment and for social connectedness, uh, as a more of like a routine medication that, that I take more regularly at lower doses. So that's the shortest version. There's so many other parts to it, but that's like literally the story of like my first book is basically all of that.
0: That's really awesome. Very interesting. had a couple of, uh, kind of follow up questions to, to that. So what were you taking any medications before you started um, with LSD. Or...
1: Yeah, I had tried to take uh, like SSRIs and things like that. I had a general sense that I was depressed, but I because I was so dissociated, I didn't seem to have access to like the the highs or the lows with SSRIs or when I was at my baseline, I didn't seem to have access. And so I was just sort of like disoriented as far as like, you know, what felt good to me, I was like detached from from my surroundings. Um, so I think that that's why those medications didn't really do anything. Cause I would sit and talk therapy and they would ask me questions like, how did I feel about this or that or the other? And I just sort of drew a blank when I was trying to come up with, you know, how did I feel towards these things? Um, and, um, and similarly LSD also enhanced that ability for me to kind of like read the room or read other people or kind of like integrate different components of like processing in a way that that started to make the world of of people and socializing make more sense as well. So like those other medicines don't tend to have that particular effect where like that integrative processing is necessarily increasing. I mean, we know that serotonin modulates some social cognition components, but LSD is just like such a, like a targeted, um, compound in the sense of like how it's really, to me, I see it as like a sort of supplemental serotonin, uh, in some sense when, when I'm taking it, um, it has, other complex pharmacology that's way beyond, uh, my level of credential to explain, but that's kind of how I perceive the first-hand perspective with it. Um, but I was trying other medicines prior, but they didn't help me like kind of work through, uh, the, the mental landscape or like enter that embodiment state that I see as really essential for working through and, and charting course for like my future.
0: Yeah, I, I, agree with what you're saying that, you know, there's definitely limitations of SSRIs in that context with uh, with sort of the feedback and receptiveness of building on processes and neuroplasticity. And I think you kind of had a, one question I you kind of got to about the mechanisms of how you see that LSD and psychedelic substances like LSD can help for neurodivergence. if um, you have anything to add to that? I feel like you addressed this already,
1: but... Yeah, I think it's also worth noting that I was also diagnosed with ADHD when I was younger. And, uh, you know, I have LSD to thank for a lot of the work that I have done over the last 10 years as far as it helping me with like task initiation Um and just general energetic focus and flow state, um, it really helps me. Um, It's been documented to show like increases in like divergent thinking in terms of coming up with different solutions or novel solutions, whether that's in a therapeutic context, or just in like a general working context, I find myself able to like, more easily move through my workloads with LSD as well. um, Which leads to like better overall health, because I'm like, able to survive in the economy more readily and things like that. Um, and we know that LSD is a bit more, uh, has a bit more of an affinity than even psilocybin in terms of like dopamine targets. Um, and I think that that um, you guys, I, I, I know vaguely about this. so I won't even attempt to explain it, but I think uh is possible with the LSD and therefore like uh, that sort of dopaminergic and serotonergic effect seems to really work in a lot of different contexts for me really well.
2: So, Aaron, I kind of wanted to uh, jump in and um, may- maybe have you talk a little bit more about um, the autistic psychedelic community and what you've learned through the community, uh, what it was like st- when you started being a part of the group and what the long-term vision for this community might look like uh, going forward. Yeah,
1: Definitely. So, I mean, the group just started right about when the pandemic started. Uh, it was... Uh, really just at first it was, you know, it. A, on, after I published my book, the first book, then I started to get all these letters and I was like, we should just get all these people together because like all of them don't know anyone else who has had this experience. And if all of us could just get together... There's probably something we could learn from each other. Um, And so it started more as like a discussion group, primarily about psychedelics, but then something odd started to also dawn on me, or not odd at all, but it was also these meetings were the first time that almost everyone inside the meeting was in a room with anyone else that let them know that they were autistic. We don't like go around notifying people in our lives that we're autistic. In fact, most autistic people go to incredible lengths to like camouflage or mask some of these presentations so that you know they're they're not disadvantaged in social contexts and things like this. Um, and so it then evolved, and still today, like we probably spend like ninety percent of the meeting time talking about just being autistic, living in the world, having to overcome certain kinds of challenges we but we speak a similar language also um and so we have like a sort of unique compassion for each other so that level of like peer support and like the affinity nature of like the the zoom meetings that we host every sunday has really driven all of the different things that have come since then we published an anthology of stories from people from the group you know we're now teaching therapists and facilitators like how to you know yes, how to potentially how to work with psychedelics, but also just how to better understand and speak the language of this, like, you know, subculture, as I see it now. Um, Like this, there's a certain kind of innate familiarity that we all have with our experience that isn't necessarily in the textbook literature. Um, It's like in our lived experiences. So it's been really pleasant to learn directly from other people about their challenges and their solutions and like be able to then like broadcast that back out uh, to help people become more aware of like how to tailor certain types of services psychedelics or not um, there's a lot of like kind of core things that i've learned just from interfacing with these thousands of different autistic people uh, over the years um, and as far as future vision i think we just kind of continue to do what we have been doing which is listening to the needs that are shared within that group space and like through the ongoing like, message boards and things like that And, you know, right now we're starting to build this sort of psychedelic care, but I think it's very easy to imagine like growth into other things, like creating like a mentorship network for people with lived experience that have worked through these issues. Um, You know, there's a lot of support needed. I get contacted by a lot of parents of adult autistics and they don't really know how to what how to approach it Um, they're kind of hitting walls and sometimes that's because some of the care that certain autistics need again there's such a wide range of presentations but certain autistics really uh, there is not very many currently like super successful strategies for how to kind of like uh, help these individuals thrive in the world. And I think what's really unique about psychedelics is they present this opportunity for like intuitive and direct learning on the part of the individual, um, as opposed to more like behavioral approaches where autistic people are, you know, kind of being told to do X, Y, or Z, and then they repeat that action, try to succeed and do that. But when you can really bring someone into that deep embodiment state and, and, and kind of, bring that integrative processing up. I have like real confidence, having lived it and having helped a lot of others go through it, um, that they can start to navigate their lives and kind of reclaim some of the agency that they forfeit by virtue of just, you know, if you if you are told that you're you're missing the the signals or the cues, uh, you're gonna start to like just look for others to kind of guide you. Um and there's a real potential in these medicines for kind of reassigning that agency. Um, so Yeah. The community is kind of just like amorphous and people form their own little satellite groups. I think it's just part of a broader movement for people to, you know, disclose their challenges, talk about their mental health uh, more openly so that, you know, people don't have to go through it quite so alone. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It sounds like there's like validation that people gain from the community and seems like You know, it offers them hope beyond the traditional treatment modalities for autism spectrum disorder.
1: Yeah, very much so. And it's been a treat to also realize, I mean, it's one in 45 people in the U.S. um, The CDC estimates is autistic. And so we're like everywhere uh, in all different industries. And it's been a treat to see people who are therapists or people who are psychedelic facilitators, whatever it may be, them bringing their own lived experience and, and helping others through that lens is, you know, it's, there's a real kind of like, un, un un unteachable compassion, I think that comes from that. And I'm excited about being able to offer more like we, we refer to it as like, neurodiversity affirming care, like affirming one's identity like highlighting some of their strengths and giving them kind of a roadmap for success, which other approaches do do. Um, But I think that that psychological flexibility that's innate in some of the psychedelic work really helps these individuals to also like imagine different roadmaps or be open to, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes the first step for these individuals is going through a process of actually accepting themselves in order to then take action after that. Um there's, there's, a, there's a lot of difficulty with just being diagnosed that people are, are kind of holding on to, um, being told that they're other, uh, being told that they can't. And, um, you know, for some people, acceptance might be as far as they can take some of these challenges. They might always live with certain types of challenges, but there's there's a chance to kind of you know, bend, bend the perspective a bit like palliative care, maybe where you're, you're not, you're not solving, you know, the, the, the illness that's going to be, you know, persistent in their life, but you're changing their relationship to it so that they can, um, you know, be open to the effort that it might be required of them in order to like, you know, seek towards wellness.
0: Yeah. Thank you. I, I think that just the inspiration of offering a community and offering hope, um, is really powerful. And I agree with you about helping people take agency over their lives and over their choices, you know, not telling people what you can't all the time do, but what you can do, that's pretty powerful. And I'll make sure if I, you know, to mention this to anybody that I have to interact with, uh, in a clinical setting, I think this could really be helpful, um, as a community for people at least present as an option. Yeah. What sort of specific considerations do you think individuals with, um, autism spectrum or other neurodivergent conditions. I I listened to one of your podcasts recently. It was about bipolar disorder and the use of psychedelics, where you had some people tell their stories about um, using psychedelics. Some people are talking about their fears around it. um, Before they were going in, they were scared, uh, some of them. And I caution that for people with a history of mania, that psychedelics might not be a good choice for them um, based on what I've read. Now, grant, we know there's subtypes of bipolar disorder, so I'm getting a little bit off topic here. But in general, like, do you think there's any special considerations that someone needs to consider before starting psychedelic therapy? You mentioned about talking to clinicians about how to engage um, with psychedelics. So what do, you, what do you talk to patients or clinicians about?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, so far as we understand it and, you know, the the, a lot of this is based mainly on anecdotes and uh, survey data that we collect from people self-reporting. So, you know, it's it's not as robust uh, up till now as it will be in a few years. Like, uh, you know, we I'm a part of a couple of different surveys that are kind of affirming some of the things that we kind of know within our community. but, you know, the same medical screener that you would provide to anyone that was coming to your center, say, in Oregon for psilocybin, um, you know, or whatever it might be, wh- whatever the compound might be, ketamine, MDMA, whatever, um, so far as we can see it, autism itself isn't like uh, like a, a, a known contraindication uh, for receiving these medicines. Uh, oftentimes however autistics also have a lot of co-occurring conditions so if there is concerns around schizophrenia or bipolar um or any sort of like psychosis uh within like you know first degree relative or within that individual that's definitely like a higher uh you know a higher risk uh, situation to enter into and in that same bipolar episode that you had mentioned you know we had individuals that were talking about that really complex landscape they were like i i'm I'm, 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 my bipolar diagnosis precludes me from, you know, participating, and yet they're getting benefits and they're also experiencing some of the known risk as well. Some of the individuals did report that they were then becoming hypomanic after their medication uh, was taken, after like psilocybin and and such. and, and the, the surveys would say similar that like, you know, people are reporting adverse events such as that in their use, and then it's like weighing that like risk and benefit um, and having a proper like container in which, you know, ideally, I think that like, there's two, there's ways of thinking about this, where it's like, if we construct places that, you know, self-reporting is only so good as far as these contraindications or as far as like people knowing their own medical history within their family. Um, And so like, you know, ideally you set up containers of care that can, you know, can, can safely contain uh hypomania or a psych, psychotic um episode um obviously you're trying to avoid that and a lot of a lot of research right now up till this point has been to minimize any and all risk and to homogenize the study groups and things like that um but nonetheless like there's always the chance that someone doesn't know that their relative has that or they don't know that they have that elevated chance of that happening so i think that's where like you really Again, we're constrained by economics and so many other things, but like uh, there are such places like uh, there's like emergence centers where people go if they do enter into like uh, a sort of a psychosis like state and rather than medicating that person, they give them like a safe space. For them to continue to process what they're processing, um, but that's like you know it's not always available. It's expensive. It's a lot of time put in. I'm not. That's like more of a tangent towards like the bipolar stuff. Um, and I think that's near and dear to me to give like a voice to people. Um, that have experienced some benefit and some risk. That's, it's a bit of a tangent from the autism piece, but I just want to like address that because it's, it feels important to kind of present the nuance um, where we only really kind of have this kind of, you know, I'm not, I'm not endorsing uh, any use really. I'm just researching it. I'm talking about my lived experiences. I'm, I'm sharing others experiences um, so far as we know it, but short version of this question was really just that there is no clear contraindication for um, autism itself Um, but all the other things that a medical screener would present uh, as like a potential uh, reason to screen someone out um, you know whether that's cardiac related whether that's uh, psychiatric um, all those things are going to apply to the same crowd Um, and the other nuance all of this is that autism also exists in a very wide range of forms uh so for example in our Toronto study, we're doing a depression focused study, but we're only working with to begin with, we're only working with individuals that have low support needs and that have no intellectual disabilities but are autistic. So it's like a subgroup of autistic individuals um, because we're making like the smallest pivot off of like the general population to start, because that's perceived to be the lowest risk to like push into that frontier. Um, so you know, if someone is totally unable to communicate, uh, whether that's through speech or writing or things like that, like a, a high dose session might be a very potentially, you know, difficult thing if they cannot process it uh through language and things like that. Like I'm not envisioning that individuals with very, very high support needs would be taking high doses in any way that Nova Memphis study you mentioned is probably more adjacent to the things that will be explored through evidence-based research in the future, like more subtler dosing, seeing how the serotonin system is being interacted with, seeing how potentially like the anti-inflammatory properties of certain medicines might be interacting or that psychoplastogenic effect. Um, So there's a lot to discuss like at some level autistic individuals are just as varied as like the whole of the human race as far as their presentation um and they're also like n of ones in some sense a lot of the time there's a lot of different presentations so i'm always like adding an extra bullet point and an asterisk to everything i say because like There's a selection bias too. like the people that completed our survey were people that were able to locate a survey online, complete that, um, you know, hold attention for the time it took them to complete that survey. So there's going to be like selection bias to a lot of these reports Um, and it's just going to be a long gradual process until we start to learn, like, are there clear associations as far as risks might go, but that psilocybin study is going to be only the second study basically since the 60s, which the other study being the MAPS DMA study, that's really going to show any safety uh, data, like as far as actually observed in a clinical setting.
0: Yeah, that, those are very good points that most of the data we're relying on is reports from individuals, which introduces selection bias. Um, microdosing studies, we talked a little about microdosing in previous episodes, but that has all the same problems, is that it's People doing their own regimens and self-reporting them, and then what metrics are you really assessing? Um, you know, some people take it for this or for that, so it's hard to scientifically look at all that data. When so it's n of one, as you said, so disaggregated, uh, and we like black and white answers. I feel like in science and medicine, that's a problem. Uh, I did the bipolar disorder was a little bit tangent. You're right, but I you talked about it on the recent podcast, so. I probably should have addressed that in a separate question, but I thought that's
1: no, no, it's all good. About. It's yeah. it's such a it's such a delicate topic, and I and I and you know I I just wanted to like because it's so delicate, I'm trying to like kind of clarify and quantify it's like just giving the space for those stories to be shared was like the main target but you know i i I think that eventually you know the there was there was a survey a couple years ago and they found that like 30 percent of the participants even on a self-reported survey reported those kinds of adverse events like increased anxiety um and increased like hypomania um so like even in self-reporting people were reporting adverse outcomes um so it's uh it's definitely something that's delicate uh, but yeah
2: Aaron, it seems like uh, with autism spectrum uh, disorder that a lot of people are getting you know, diagnosed earlier in their lives than uh, what was previously done in the past. And I was just curious if uh, what you think about uh, patient age as far as psychedelic use is concerned, if there should be you know, a certain age before they could potentially start using a psychedelic or what your experience with that would be.
1: Yeah, I mean, my I'll, I'll say the answer that is evidence based, which is we don't know um, beyond ketamine being safe and efficacious for a, a general anesthetic down to age five, we know that much about ketamine and um, That we know that there's, you know, anthropological reporting of indigenous use of these medicines like psilocybin or ayahuasca in adolescent groups, I believe maps is required to do an MDMA adolescent study as part of the federal regulatory approvals process like on the other side of FDA approval, I believe that's a planned component of it. And I think that just as we've tested a lot of other psychotropic medicines, I think that these medicines are probably going to follow a similar path, just starting from, you know, validating safety and efficacy in adults. And then if the benefit is perceived to outweigh the potential risk, there might be uh, a path where these medicines uh, make their way into adolescent groups right now. You know for the sake of ethics and everything else like i, I we're mainly interfacing with uh consenting adults um like but I, and by mainly i mean exclusively you know people send me unsolicited reports of uh of like use that's happened in, in lower age groups um but you know just for the sake of uh of of honoring like the need for you know the you know, us to actually know the safety first. Um, I think I think that's going to be about, like, you know, five to ten years out until we start to see more adolescent studies with something like psilocybin. But, um, you know, mm-hmm. for whatever it's worth, like, the, we have a lot of safety data about psilocybin more generally. Um, and it's, you know, as far as, you know, I think the other thing is more philosophical than it is evidence-based. And that is that I think when it comes to using, like, macrodoses, those tend to... I, th- I feel like there's a requirement that someone has built up uh, a sort of biographical self uh, in order for those experiences to have significance. In order, like, uh, and I think that the younger you go, the like less formed your identity might be. And I think that that could be maybe. Uh, it's it's hard to say, you know, like other cultures use these medicines as like rites of passage, transitions from, you know, childhood to adolescence, adolescence to adulthood. Um, and there's something to be said about, you know, is it more destabilizing for like a 50 year old to have a high dose uh, mushroom trip where they like completely disassemble their identity? Um, or is it like if that's like a part like a check in point throughout life, uh, is that like just, you know, in more cultures where these are used more as sacrament it's like you're communing with you know nature you're communing with whatever belief structure is ascribed to some of these medicines um so you know it's it's a huge discussion but uh you know my the i started with the safe answer and i'm ending with it which is just like we don't have the evidence yet Um, but i think that it's it's easy to imagine that we will pursue such things because There's a lot of uh, parents who are seeing the side effects that certain other medicines are having and also without much efficacy for certain challenges. So I think it's, I perceive something like psilocybin to be fairly benign. Um, There's some concerns around like 2B activation for psilocybin or LSD, even at low doses, repeated doses, but we haven't, we're yet to have validated that because it's also a real bear in terms of trying to wrangle that data and being able to get reliable data over a long enough period and like you know, short of rounding up every Grateful Dead fan and seeing if their hearts are okay. Like, I don't know how else <laughs> we're, we're really going to be able to get like a significant pool of data anytime soon with that kind of stuff. Right.
2: Um, is there anything that you wanted to uh, ask or add to that, Colby?
0: Oh, there was just a one uh, sidebar about I was reading about maybe autistic individuals could be more sensitive to sensory overload with um, especially a heroic dose of LSD. Yet even that's conflicting because I read There's some research that actually serotonin 2A receptors are less expressed in certain forms of autism. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. That's the heterogeneity of the group that makes it really complicated to really say much. But um, I, I will say from my personal experience, I definitely have and I've never been in any other nervous system to be able to tell you this, but I perceive like that I have a light and sound sensitivity insofar as certain environments are more bothersome that others seem to be able to kind of put on the back burner of their awareness. Like, I feel like everything's just always foreground for me. And when I take uh, a psychedelic compound like LSD or psilocybin, that elevates, like whether that's auditory sensitivity, light sensitivity. Um, But I think that that can also be accommodated, at least in terms of, you know, if you're doing a eye blinds and headphones session, you you pick the right music and that person's eyes are closed. So like those things aren't going to necessarily arise. They might experience, you know, an intensity. Um, you know, and, and, and this is often the case, like th- there's something in autism referred to as like the double empathy problem. And the notion that like, autistics might be processing certain types of like sensory information, uh, or emotional information in a way that's so intense that like, it appears that they're like, not like demonstrating empathy. But in fact, like they're just like the the signal to noise ratio is so intense that they're like not really processing all of those, those signals, they're just getting all the noise. And so it's like, that's like a bit of that dissociation state. There's also like a, a curious overlap where there's 50 to 70% of autistic individuals have a subclinical condition known as alexithymia, where they can't label or identify their feelings. Um, and, and like, that can also I've seen that attenuated in, in my LSD use and the discussions with others, especially something like MDMA, where it's like so plainly obvious how I'm feeling when I'm feeling it, like when, when that, like, you know, when that stress response isn't triggered as hard, I feel like the, the immediate ability to interpret like my somatic states is, is so greatly enhanced. Um, so all these compounds perform so differently. Um, but in terms of being supportive of those potentials, like I definitely experience it even when microdosing, like I tend to listen to very specific types of music on a microdosing day and it's kind of like an insulating layer against the world out there. Um, because if I'm in a, if I'm on a subway train without being on uh, any sort of psychedelic, uh, that's a very kind of intense and aggravating environment for me as it were, um, so it is something to be mindful of and something that I do hear other people reporting about as well, like that their general sensitivities do elevate. So it's like that trade off. It's like you're some of that some of that amplified sensory information to me kind of comes out in the way that um, I'm also able to tap into like my own feelings or like I'm able to kind of jump into the nuance of other people like my, that, like visual acuity kind of being elevated. Um, because there's more than just like the volume going up or down, like something like LSD is also affecting like, the whole way in which like different processing centers are cross-communicating, which local centers are like down-regulating. So there's a really complex pharmacology that's impacting like uh, an individual. And and that was a big part of my first book was the notion that, you know, and, and I'm a self-taught neuropsychopharmacologist. I don't have the credential to be able to really state this with any certainty, but I've always like from the literature I've read, there's a really interesting overlap where. Uh, there's certain evidence points towards the notion that like there is like increased like local connectivity in some autistic processing and there's a sort of hypoconnectivity at the global level um, from like you know an fmri standpoint and interestingly lsd happens to increase global connectivity and also down regulates certain uh, local connectivity Um, so there's like an interesting overlap where that Like the excitation and inhibition ratio uh, might fall into a different sort of balance. Um, And that's what I seem to experience. It seems like these that very classic uh, graphic of like the different brain regions connecting on psilocybin uh, I I perceive that to be the way in which I can decode a social situation more readily because I'm like oh that sound plus that facial expression plus this context plus that like I can run the math of a situation a little bit easier um, but I'm greatly reducing and oversimplifying what is probably nowhere close to the actual like uh you know pharmacology of all these things these are just like loose ideas yet to be tested um but you know a lot of these uh are rooted in what little pieces we know from general population studies and 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 some autism research Um, but yeah that's why i'm excited to eventually get to those mechanistic studies like the compass study you mentioned it will very likely show and illuminate some of these things as far as like how is connectivity impacted and how is like serotonin potentially, uh, like one of the sort of ways we can potentially have like subtypes uh, of autism or understand uh, autism and non autistic people in some other way just by having this kind of comparative lens.
2: Let's see, could you go a little bit more into microdosing? I guess my question. You know, regarding microdosing is um, it seems like there is a time when it would benefit from a higher dose episode, you know as far as feeling oneness and connectedness to other people. But do you think that um, with microdosing that people can get a positive with treating their autism spectrum disorder?
1: Yeah, I see it as like given dose ranges have, you know, given applications in the same way that, you know, it's useful to have a candle. Sometimes it's useful to, you know, um, it's useful to like have a fireplace that warms the house. It's useful to have a controlled burn of the whole forest around your house so that you can like replant the crops or whatever it might be. And I see that same parallel um, for like high dose sessions being really good for like intervention bringing perspective into someone's life. Um, but even at low doses, I personally experience like that psychological flexibility and that increase in divergent thinking. I mentioned it earlier, how it's helpful for just like task initiation and things like that. And then there's this other less explored dose range, which I'm particularly fascinated by. And I wrote about in my first book, which was on LSD. I was taking between like 20 and 50, uh, micrograms. And I ref- I could see that as being potentially like a sort of psycholytic psycholytic dose almost like something that would have like a not exact parallel to MDMA by any trip. means, but like having that embodiment state <laughs> uh, come back online in a way that's, that's, you know, but you're going to also at that dose range, the catch is you're going to be very noticeably on drugs. So like if you're not in a therapeutic environment, it's not like a daily functional range to take, like your pupils will dilate things like that. Um, but is it potentially like a, a a, a well tolerated, more routine medication for like kind of engaging in consistent like therapeutic sessions, or like you know, kind of like could we adjunct like social skills learning uh, when people are a bit more embodied and like able to kind of have that uh, that sort of psychoplasticin effect kind of coming into play a bit more frequently. That's something that's really interesting to me because um, that's how I experience my life. Like that's how I ex- it's it's hard to say because I have so consistently used lsd over this last decade but i i chalk up so much progress um to that effect and, and the ability to kind of weave together these different ideas over and over and connect them and, and 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 understand my and contextualize my everyday life a lot easier
0: yeah i think the psycholytic dose has a lot of potential and that was kind of earlier studies of lsd that's really what they looked at was that psycholytic dose i, I refer to it as like a, a light trip but uh uh, it's above a microdose, but below what we consider to be sort of the, the medium to high dose trips in, in intensity. So I think that does have a lot of potential benefit from what I've read um, in those earlier studies. Yeah.
1: And the, the non-medical world would refer to it as like a museum dose for making like the museum uh, like more interesting or like you can kind of you can get things a little bit more deeply uh, when you're when you're in that range.
0: So can you talk a little bit about the ADAPT program and your role in the uh, development of that program?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I, I'm, I'm merely an advisor. Uh, it's, a, you know, it's an academic study that's looking at uh, kind of creating something that's going to be a, a, a much more updated version of something like DARE. And rather than uh, coming at it from an, an abstinence program, uh, we're coming at it from the perspective of like a self-inquiry kind of approach and, you know, being like, why do you use the things that you use? And even the things that you might be in an addictive relationship with um, whatever that might be like what benefit is it providing you and can we find a healthy substitute for the thing that you're trying to address um and you know and and moving away from like the the shame and the stigma and it's not so much that like you know it's very much not like focused on psychedelics per se it's just more focused on getting people into that space of thinking about like you know, rather than like substances bad, don't do them. It's like more like, well, what is it doing for you? And 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 what is that issue that you're trying to address? Um and so that's a piece of it. And then, you know, it, it's it's going also to try to tailor that to autistic challenges um, because of some of the things that we're talking about. Some people have, like, if you have an intense uh, sensitivity to sound or things like this, uh, some, or if you have, like, intense social anxiety, some people might fall into an unhealthy relationship with something like alcohol. And that's unique to, like, you know, their core challenges and their core identity of some of, like, their neurological characteristics. So, like, how can we educate people on how to, like, Better self regulate, like their nervous systems, um, and you know, accommodate themselves or consider the environments they go into, and and all these other non drug interventions that we can introduce um, in order for people to just better understand, like, the needs of their body and mind. uh, Basically, so yeah.
2: Aaron, could you tell us uh, what progress has been made in uh, psychedelic research for individuals? autism or neurodivergence and what are the challenges in future directions in your opinion?
1: For sure. So, you know, as it stands now, you guys mentioned the the compass study that should be probably published by end of year, or early next year. Um, the, my med also has like an ADHD study with LSD, um, but they shifted to another, like some sort of proprietary molecule, um, so there's those, and then the, the studies that I'm personally involved with, we're going to be publishing our survey data from UCL. Um, can't really talk about it in great detail, but it's just a really big, uh, a, a nice size data set, um, and that should be published by either end of year or early next year. And that'll really serve as the foundation for okay, we know that this has been you know validated through self-reporting. Can we recreate these outcomes in you know clinical observation? And uh, I'm also helping with a study that's currently in uh, ethics review up at University of Toronto. Um, And that's going to be a depression uh, study that's looking at autistic adults using psilocybin uh, in in conjunction with psychotherapy. So it's a bit of, uh, you know, the roadmap is kind of just recreating a lot of the safety and efficacy that we've seen in general population studies within this population. Um, You know, that kind of like, very subtle pivot uh, from like the, what's already kind of been established, but just reestablishing it um, within this group, see looking for differences and, and changes. Um, and then I think I'm, I'm really excited about the the sort of next wave where we can get to some of these more novel applications, like what we've talked about a bit today, like some of this psycholytic dosing or considering something like psilocybin or LSD as like a, a the, the best way I could put it is what I said earlier of like using something like that as instead of using a, uh, Ritalin for ADHD and, and attention that we could use something like LSD or psilocybin to enhance like social awareness and like social connectedness uh, in a more like you know not like exactly every day because these medicines don't work that way but like in a I, I refer to that as like context dependent dosing and, and empowering people with these types of tools um, in the future uh, but that remains to be seen as far as will we ever permit uh, take home uh, LSD or psilocybin we we will see it's a it's a long regulatory road ahead to to try to get to someplace like that
2: yeah thank you for your um time it seems like uh there's a lot more that we need to um, learn but uh, at the same time we're we're learning that there is hope uh for autism and Questions?
0: So some of the work you're doing is international as well, right? Uh, How are other countries? I know Australia actually recently legalized MDMA and psilocybin for prescribing there. So um, are you advising on European or Canadian agencies as well and seeing where where they are?
1: Um, Most of my advising roles right now are primarily to the academic institutions that are there, like University College London and University of Toronto, there's a bit of differences, you know, as far as, you know, what's available, how, you know, what the general costs are for research in those countries, what the what the roadmap looks like for access. Uh, Australia is a tricky one. They only approve those two for like the narrow designations for like um, psilocybin for uh, treatment resistant depression and MDMA for... Um, for ptsd um but i think that we might see some interesting things develop with now with oregon uh, opening up in the u.s we're probably going to get more data from just people going into clinics in oregon um than we could in like a decade of of uh you know conventional research world um just because you don't need any medical condition in order to receive services in a place like oregon um but yeah, there's definitely some interesting exceptions abroad. We have a lot of people from the Netherlands, for example, who are, you know, able to go and purchase truffles from a smart shop who are able to get like some sort of known quantity and, and potency with their medicines. I Also residing in Colorado, we're at the state level, we're able to cultivate psilocybin mushrooms and and share them uh, and engage with them on that level. Um, but it's, you know, with everything else that as far as, you know, people getting services that are in a sort of regulated context. Um, it's just, it's a waiting game for now. Um, but yeah, I'm always open to further advising. Um, I also have like my personal site is just erinorsini.com. I have a lot of information about, uh, more about my background, more about, you know, the types of ways that I can add value and, part of that also is like participating in things like uh, informing retreats on how can they have certain types of assistive devices present that are going to make the experience more comfortable or how how can they improve their intake forms, uh, ask certain questions they might not think of uh, asking and things like that. So yeah, it's just a lot of different stuff. Uh, As you can tell from this conversation, it's like there's so many, uh, there's so much nuance to any one of these uh, kinds of questions and to really feel like I'm addressing all of all, all of the needs is, uh, it's tricky. It's, it's, it's a really big territory.
0: Well, I'm just really glad someone like you, we are trying to address those needs today in our society. We, we do think maybe that autism special disorders on the rise, we're probably getting a lot better at diagnosing it and recognizing it and trying to adapt for the needs of people that have these special um, considerations. And so I'm just glad that we're making an effort, certainly, and there's a lot more to learn And I didn't, you're right, Australia, they did only prove it for certain indications. I did not, I was being lazy and not saying that all. (laughs) I'm aware it's only for those narrow indications. Uh, But we'd love to have someone on. You know, I'm trying to get someone on from Oregon who's working in an actual um, treatment center now. I'd love to have someone on. If you know somebody or if anyone's listening, contact me. I know it's been a bit slow to get going. There are regulatory hurdles in Oregon we've talked about in previous episodes, so there will be a lot of data. You're right when that comes online, but it's been very slow to get going in Oregon as well. Change is hard. Change takes a while at the government level. so.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, and that's you know whether and that's a bit of you know our group is is serving people regardless of the context in which you know people are engaging with these tools. Where we're just trying to provide good quality information and, and risk reduction, and 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 a space for people to to connect and and have a space to to talk about you know these things and, and help to move that stigma, uh, and and also increase like the clarity around you know all the stuff we're curious about. Yeah.
0: Well, that's kind of our goal as well. Any pharmacy-related questions people have around psychedelics, uh, feel free to reach out to Um If you want to follow up with Aaron, I will provide his contact information in the notes section. But uh, he is available, as said, for one-on-one consultations or advising um, at Aaron at psychedelic, autisticpsychedelic.com. Anything, uh, any other closing thoughts?
1: No, just gratitude for both of you for for doing this and and putting this type of information out there and and for having me here today. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Aaron. Yeah, it's it's
1: inspiring
2: to see that there's work being done in this area. I hope that it continues to go well.
0: Well, that's all we have for today. Thank you very much, everybody, for joining us. And we'll see you next time. As a reminder, as Aaron said, we are here to provide educational content, informational value. This is not a recommendation for against the use of substances which are considered federally illegal. But we are here for any questions you have. Thank you very much.